So, when will be the time of Jesus' second coming when he returns to earth? I stated last week that the church doesn't tend to think about that as much as it once did, especially during times of ease and times of abundance. And so really, a lot of my comments, as you look throughout even history and most, most recent history, like since America has been America, need to really segregate the North American church from the rest of the world because a lot of what I'm going to say doesn't pertain as much to the rest of the world because the rest of the world has not experienced the prosperity that we have had here as a nation throughout basically our history. What follows in our text this morning from where we left off last week in Mark chapter 13 is a description of yet more of the things which will lead up to that time that the disciples were asking about. And Jesus also gives some instructions on how to live in light of those things that he started listing last week to be on the alert for and continues through in this morning's texts. But Jesus, last week and again this week, never definitively answers the question of when will these things be. And there was reason for that. Because if he had had given us, okay, when this happens, you will know that it's happening. I mean, it's right there. It's now. So, get ready. If Jesus gave us that kind of a heads up, the evidence from history is that what we would do is fixate on self-absorbed preservation, not personal preparation. Meaning if we knew exactly when all hell was going to break loose, and it's like, okay, well, I've got, you know, six and a half years to prepare for that, so put that off. In the meantime, I can continue perpetuating, you know, my, my great lifestyle and everything that I have going on, and it's good here. If we knew it was 15 years down the road, even better still. Yeah, I don't need to worry about that. If we knew that it was 50 years down the road, not even going to be in my lifetime, so I can keep grabbing for all the gusto right here and right now. That is what the history of Christendom bears out. And of course, Jesus, who is God incarnate, knows better. We would concentrate on ways to make ourselves more secure, meaning actually how to make our standard of living, our lifestyle, more certain. So the conclusion to last week's message, this, by the way, is all by way of review, and you can get all of these messages always online. Are we preparing to be prepared for what is coming, or are we preparing to preserve all that we love about this life? You've heard the cliche, I'm sure, that you can't take it with you, right? Well, Gary Larson, the creator of The Far Side, who has really a warped sense of humor when he was publishing, I remembered this from ages ago, over 25 years ago when I first saw this, and I thought, I like that a lot. Because it reminded me of the scripture, 1 Peter 2.11, and there's others. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, speaking of the body of Christ, I beseech you, or I urge you, or I beg you, as aliens and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Now when it says there in there that I beg you, 
to, to our view of ourselves in this world, in this life, is to think of ourselves because we really are supposed to be aliens, not aliens from like, you know, planet whatever, but aliens as in this earth, this world, this life. This is not our home. There is a perfect home and a perfect place that all people of faith in Christ alone are headed towards. And so he says, so don't get too comfortable here. And I am beseeching you as aliens and exiles, those who have been cast out of their native land. That's who we are supposed to be and how we are supposed to live with that kind of a mindset. But that's not the case in a place of prosperity. So I believe that Jesus is at least trying to help us not to bank on what we are used to, not to bank on the status quo, which would be much more convenient if we knew precisely when all the things Jesus is warning about would come to pass, as I mentioned. So he doesn't do it. So without ever answering the question the four disciples put to him earlier, this was last week, about the when of it all, Jesus continues now just describing what will be, but again, just like last week, even that is vague, and it's mysterious, and as you're going to see in a few minutes, it's confusing. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, new material. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But rather pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of, the, of creation which God created even until now and never will. In fact, it will be so bad that unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And Jesus repeats again in verses 21 to 23. And if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, to lead even astray the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. So Jesus purposely, he intentionally avoids telling all believers, because remember this is written to all believers throughout the ages, not just those listening to Jesus at the time. He avoids telling us the when of these things. He only says that they will. And if you are a Christ follower, you need to look to yourself, was the literal rendering from the original language. We saw the, the word used in verse 9 and again repeated the same word in verse 23 that I just read. But it's translated, take heed. But it means to look to yourself. It doesn't mean to become self-absorbed, concentrating on what you will do to maintain a comfortable complacency in tough times. It means look to yourself and analyze yourself. Take, take, take account of who you are and what you are about. And are you really heavenly minded and kingdom centered? 
It means to examine one's self, evaluating the priorities of each of our lives, making God our absolutely top priority, not merely one of many priorities. And honestly, that is the scourge of the church today. Did your mom or your dad ever say anything to you along the lines of, don't say I didn't warn you. Have you never said to a son or a daughter, look, I've warned you, I know what I'm talking about, so don't come crying to me when it all falls apart. Oh, I heard that a few times growing up. And I said it a few times when I had children. But now Jesus who without the imperfections of our fallen natures, says something really, though, quite similar. He says, Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Verse 24, In those days then, after that tribulation, I'm going to read that again for emphasis, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect, which is just a biblical word for believers, those true Christ followers. He will gather them from the four winds and from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. I emphasize, but in those days after that tribulation, because the flavor and the tenor of Christendom today seems to be that we are cockfire sure about the fact that the church in what, the, what is called the rapture, it's not even a biblical word, but when Jesus is going to so-called take the church up, out of you've seen movies about it, right? When he takes the church up is supposedly before the rapture occurs. Maybe. I hope so. But I don't happen to share that opinion. I believe that the church is going to be around through the tribulation, but removed before the wrath of God is poured out. That's just for what it's worth. It may be worth nothing. So they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, I want you to just keep that in mind for a minute, and I want to jump ahead to what this is going to be, or what I'm going to allude to, to show you the importance of this, again, when thinking about the things of the end and the ambiguity and the uncertainty of all of these things that Jesus has been saying to us. We're going to jump ahead only a few days in the historical timeline to where Jesus has been crucified, he died, but now he has risen from the dead, but he hasn't yet ascended back into heaven. He is now walking planet earth, and he's seeing people, he's spending time with the disciples, and all of that. But now we come to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is standing in person with the twelve where he is giving them sort of his last message that they will ever hear from his mouth directly before he ascends back into heaven. This is what we read in Acts chapter 1. After he had said these things, Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, they weren't men, they were angels, in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Really? Will you please put yourself in the situation? Okay, take it out of the realm of, oh, it's a story or whatever. You're one of the twelve, and you are there, and Jesus, who you've spent the last three years of your life with, is there physically, and he said the last thing he's going to say to you, and all of a sudden, he just starts going, okay? Now, understand, he doesn't dematerialize, like, you know, beam me up, Scotty, and then you see the bodies kind of pixelate, and they gradually just kind of disappear, and then they repixelate wherever they were being beamed up to, and they appear again. No, no, Jesus physical body, God in human form, starts rising up to them. What are you going to do? You're going to go, wow, boy, that's interesting. Okay, listen, let's go grab some lunch. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be going... I've lost him. Any of you guys see... And so they're there, and I love the way this is portrayed. They're standing there, and these two angelic messengers of God go, uh, what are you guys doing? (laughs) What do you mean, what are we doing? Do you realize what we just saw? Here's what the angels say to them. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in exactly, I know it's not translated that way, but that's what the word means, hutos means in exactly the same manner. He will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So when Jesus says to them again, now going back to Mark chapter 13, 26, where we are, that then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, That will be the unmistakable event. It will be an unmistakable event. You won't have to be wondering if this is or if this isn't. It will be compelling because just like they saw the physical body of Jesus going up into heaven, they will see, I mean they, all believers now, will see the physical Jesus coming down from heaven. Amen. Jesus continues in more detail about the what. But even in this case, there's no direct reference to time, but seems about maybe as close as he comes to it is in verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, what are these things? All the things that Jesus has been talking about last week and still is through this week. When you see these things, you'll recognize that he is near even at the door. But now understand that even in that, there's some uncertainty. Because... You know, before we get all cranked up about this, that well, he's right at the door. I mean, I mean, you talk about it's going to be, it really is going to be tomorrow or even in a half hour from now. Or we'll remember, remember that God's watch, so to speak, 
is not like our watch. God's time is not like our time. He tells us that several places in the scriptures. In Psalm 90, he says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or it's as a few hours in the night. He says elsewhere that uh, to me a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. The point being that these things that I'm telling you to look for, you know that there, had, there should be a sense of imminence, a sense of urgency. But this really hits home with me because I have an annual ritual that I do with a pear tree that we happen to have in our yard. And when we get started getting later into the winter and I'm getting really annoyed with snowstorm after snowstorm and then you get kind of suckered into a 50 degree day or something and you're like, yes, it's finally here. And then you get killed when you're not looking, right? And this is honest to goodness truth started the first time maybe four weeks ago. So I tromp out through the snow because I'm going to go look at the pear tree. I just want some reassurance. And I'm thinking, you know, hey, the farmers do it, right? They look at the woolly booger and they see how much fur and how thick it is. And they say, oh, yeah, man, it's going to be an early spring next year. Let me tell you, they called it for this year about the snows and everything. Farmer's Almanac. Forget meteorology, satellites, and all that. Go to the woolly booger. Go to the, the you know, all that. Yeah. Oh, I say, sorry, get off track here. So I go up to my pear tree the first time, and I look at the bud, and sure enough, that bud is, is at least twice the size as it was in the fall before things started happening. And they're small, and they're real hard, and they're pointy. But this time when I went out there now, they were at least twice the size. And so I'm like, <laughs> all right. You know what? Maybe this was just a fluky late spring snowstorm, right? Yeah, I think we had three more after that. But and so several more weeks went by, and two more snowstorms went by. I go back out to that pear tree. He's like, I don't know. I'm looking for some encouragement or something. And there's that bud again. Now the bud's a little bigger still, but now the really exciting part is there's a hairline around the bud that's dark green. That's the leaf inside, which means, which tells me, any, dare I say, day, okay, week, it's main, that bud's going to go, poof, and there's going to be a leaf coming out. And then I'll know, right? So I look at this, I really go through this, you're like, you are crazy, dude. No, I'm desperate. <laughs> I know that when I see that, that even though we just got smacked with another 12 inches, that winter's demise is near and spring is going to happen. It may be a week from now. It may be a month from now. It may be, don't be two months from now, please. But it's coming. See, I'm trying not to let myself get suckered by the weather out here and for tomorrow, right? And Tuesday, 70s, did I say that? Ah! If we get snow the week after, you can blame me. I know that winter's demise is near. Well, like it or not, Jesus, even with that, and telling them what to look for, and you know what? You know that, that, that things are heating up, and, and you know what? He's right there. He's even at the door. Well, but again, God's timing is not like our timing. And even with that, Jesus likes somehow keeping, off, keeping us off balance regarding the when of all these things. And just as we might think that we're getting a bit closer to clarity with what Jesus is saying, he throws in something else that is debated to this day. 
In verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Whoa, 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 wait, time out. What? Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, said to the people right there that he was talking to, this generation will not pass away until all these things that we've been talking about have come and gone. Well, but they haven't come and gone. So what do we do? Do we go, yeah, see, you know what? All those critics out there, all those friends of mine who go, the Bible, you know, it's just full of contradictions. There's this and that and the other thing. Oh, there's a couple of good things in there, some nice thoughts and everything else. You don't throw into that the liberal theologians who go, yeah, oh, that's easy to explain. Jesus was just mistaken. Okay. You tell them that when you see them. Hey, God, remember that time? Yeah. That's, sorry, my warped little mind. We know that Jesus was not mistaken. So, okay. So now we have to marry this so that it makes sense without fiddling with and fudging with and adding things that aren't there to make it make sense to us. I don't have the definitive answer for you this morning. I have an answer. And it may be the answer. But I don't want you to stake your life on it because I sure aren't. Am. Not. Whatever. (laughs) So, okay. Jesus says, This generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. In our normal understanding of the passage, what he means is this general, what's a generation? He's talking about a biological generation. When my parents gave birth to Barb and I, let's say Barb and I are the first lap, okay, of, of uh, the, the, the biological process. We are one generation. When we have children, as we did, that was the second lap. They had children, that's the third lap. So there's three generations. Jesus is speaking to the people and saying, this generation will not pass away till these things come to take place. But they didn't come to take place. So we got to say, okay, either we are misunderstanding what he meant by generation, or we're misunderstanding what he meant by all these things will take place. All right. So can we do that legitimately, keeping good grammar, good syntax, good Greek, all in its proper place? We don't want to make the Bible say something just to make it convenient for us. So when I'm in a pickle like this, what I do is the first thing I do is I look at the keyword or the keywords and I look at the semantic range of the particular word. In this case, we're going to look at the word generation. So what did Jesus mean? We're assuming that he meant a biological generation. But could he have meant something else? Now we go, we do our faithful study of the Koine Greek, which you pay me to do, and, <laughs> and which I can make up anything I want, and you'll never know. Uh, but No, no, no. That was, did that come out of my mouth? Somebody come up here and slap me. No, I would never do that to you. I have to uh, answer to the Lord for those kinds of things. So I look at the semantic range of the word. What is the semantic range of the word? Blah, blah. All right, take the word love. Okay? What does love mean? If I asked 10 people in here what love meant, I bet I could get 10 different definitions for what it means. If a person is, let's just say the person is single and they're little fluffy, which is a dog, not a cat, 
is everything to them. They say, well, lo- love, I, I love my little fluffy. Okay? Okay, got it. Next person. They don't have a fluffy. Nobody they think they really care about, but they love food. Well, I love me a good Chicago-style pizza that's about that thick, deep dish, you know, with mushroom, mushroom sausage, green pepper on that. I love it. Okay, wait a minute. We got, I love fluffy. Now I love pizza. Now you talk to mom and dad who've just given birth to this little baby, and they're holding this little brand-new baby, and they're like, love? Love is what I'm feeling right now for this little child. And you ask the, father, the, the husband of his wife of 43 years, if you ask me, I say, I'm just so in love with my dear Barbara, and she is everything to me. This is a waste because she's not here, isn't it? Okay. Anyway, no. The point is, so I love my dog. I love hot dogs. I love my little baby. I love my wife. And each definition of those words, we understand what they mean, but there's a whole range of what it means from loving a dog to a loving of my spouse or even above that to loving God. That's the semantic range of a word. So what is the semantic range of the word for generation, the word gene'a? I'm glad you asked. All right. The normal routine sense, even as it's used scripturally, usually tends to refer to what I said, kind of a lap around the biological clock thing, all right? But it doesn't have to mean that. It is also used to refer to, to a group that shares something in common, that is, it has a collective identity. So in other words, Jesus standing there before all these people says, this generation, this Gana'a will not pass away until he can actually legitimately mean by demonstration until all the believers here who will ever be, then this will happen. Or it could mean until all the unbelievers who are not just here, but here for all time, until they, or it could be Jews, until all the Jews, you know, come in and fulfill the king and all of that. So Gennett can mean uh, just a group with a collective identity, and not even at that one time, but throughout all the ages. Well, if that's the case, if, I'm saying, that's the case, the problem is solved. Let me be a little more clear now. Let's look at the second phrase that is key in understanding this, and that is, what did Jesus mean by all these things? Well, again, we assume what he meant was all the things that he listed here, that they will come, they will be, uh, they will be you know, uh, uh, kind of so you can't miss them when they're upon you, and then they will be done, and then this other thing will happen, and, and all of that. That's what we, the assumption that we bring to that. But do all these things, given the grammar and the syntax, does it have to be viewed that way? And the answer is no, it doesn't. What I'm trying to do for your sake is get back on task here so that we can bring this down. See if I can do that. All right, so Jesus, when he refers to all these things, he could possibly mean as we assumed, he's talking about all these things come and they're done in their completion and then something else like the generation you know, will, have already, will pass away after that. He can mean that, but he doesn't have to. Okay, For the sake of uh, Kelsey, who I know I've lost because I'm all over the place, I'm on the queue before this generation passes away. Before this generation passes away, what he could very well mean, and it's consistent with the language, is you will get you those who are hearing me, and also those who hear me throughout the ages, the generation, the genea of the believers, 
or if that's who it happens to be, or unbelievers, whatever, you will get a taste of everything I have mentioned here and will be being tasted throughout the ages so long as there are still unbelievers around or believers around or Jews around, whatever the the Gennea happens to be. So let me try and bring this down a little clearer still. So for our purposes... And with my oversimplified explanation, by faith, let's agree that Jesus wasn't mistaken, for as he says in the next verse, his words will never fail. Whatever ambiguities, whatever uncertainties we encounter concerning end time speculations, we can be sure of absolutely one thing. And that is, but of that day or hour, Mark 13.32, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor even the Son, Jesus, but the Father alone. So you see, when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until, he could be referring to those groups of collective identity will experience, will have tastes of these things that Jesus has mentioned. And when we go back historically, if you go back, for example, to 70 Anno Domini, 70 AD, when the ransacking of the temple by the Roman army took place, clearly that was one of the hallmarks of the things that Jesus had said would take place before the generation passed away. Meaning the, the, the people, the generation in that time period experienced it and it's already come, and it's already gone. But then the passage I just read too, just one more example, where Jesus said, and when the abomination of desolation takes its place in the temple, or however exactly it was worded there, think about this. And again, I'm not saying this is the answer. But today, right now, if you go online and you put in Google and Google Images, uh, the Dome of the, Ro- Dome, of, Dome of the Rock, you know, the big mosque, the Islamic uh mosque that is there in Jerusalem. You can't miss it because it's got a huge gold dome. Do you know where the the Dome of the Rock is situated physically in Jerusalem? It is situated exactly in the center of where the temple used to be. Could that be the abomination of desolations? Well, I'm saying, well, maybe it could be. I haven't really studied it that much. But it certainly fits as being an abomination because Islam has been the number one arch enemy, not just of Christianity, but of all religions other than Islam throughout the ages. So what I'm saying is, is as you go down the timeline, these things that Jesus has been mentioning have been being experienced by these groups and they're going to continue to be experienced until they are completed, they are done, and Jesus, in fact, comes back. And he promises that, yeah, and... These groups, these generations, these Gennettes are going to still be alive. I apologize. That's still confusing. I know. That's, that's my fault. It's not the fault of Scripture. All right? But hopefully that gives you something a little more to hang your hat on. Whatever ambiguities we encounter concerning end-time speculations, we can be sure of one thing. And that is, again, verse 32, of this day and hour, nobody knows. So now how does Jesus wrap up this section of vagueness? He wraps it up with yet another command, and this actually is, I believe, the entire point of Jesus' conversations and listing all these things out between last week and this week. He says in verse 33, Take heed, that's the way it's translated, I'll get back to that, 
and keep on the alert. Seems to be a little redundant. Yeah, it does. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. He's saying, look, be ready, be alert, take heed, be on your guard, because you don't know when it's going to all happen, and I'm not telling you purposely for that reason, for the reasons that I've already mentioned. Now, take heed, verse nine, uh, uh, in verse 33, is the same word translated take heed in verse 9, 23, and now verse 33, three times he says take heed. But again, that's the word that literally means look to yourself. But then Jesus adds now in verse 33, not only take heed, but also keep on the alert. And we say, well, again, why is he so repetitive? Well, keep on the alert is a different word now altogether. And it really means keep yourself awake, literally. Keep yourself from falling asleep. So what he's saying is emphatically is whatever you do, whatever you think about the end times and everything else, instead of being fixated on the when of it all, don't slack off, don't get lazy, don't stick your head in the sand. Be a spiritual insomniac. That's somebody who can't go to sleep. And then Jesus, in verse 34, kind of ties it all off again with a word picture, as I call them. He says, It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, Jesus says, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. A fourth word. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Which comes from, well, which is the Greek word Gregore. The name Gregory, person's name, it means basically to be alert, to stay alert, to not be a sleeper. In case you wanted to know that. He says, be on the alert. Now, again, when he says, you're to be these things, being on the alert and all of that, lest the time come suddenly and the Lord returns and he finds you asleep. This is yet an entirely different word from the other two words that he has already used, actually three words that he's already used, meaning be on the alert, be on guard, stay awake, stay vigilant, stay disciplined, stay the course, don't get slack, don't slumber, don't get lazy. And when I come, verse 36, you'd better not be the continually sleeping ones. That's what's translated in our Bibles, that you be not be found asleep. It's a present active indicative participle, which is a verbal adjective, which simply is describing the individuals that Jesus doesn't want to find when he comes back as being those who are continually snoring. He wants again us to be spiritual insomniacs. So, I mean, holy cow, talk about one single emphatic theme between last week and this week. He keeps repeating himself over and over again in many different ways. Be alert, look alert, look alive, get ready. Don't stick your head in the sand. Don't fall asleep. Don't be caught slumbering. All of those things. And implicit in all this, given the context, 
is don't get wrapped around the distractions of things you have no control over, which actually are, are a lot of the things, maybe even most of the things that Jesus has already listed. Don't become fascinated with over the things, over the things that you have no control of, no matter how fascinating they might be. Going back to verse 5 and verse 6, don't be misled. And then as we are used to or ought to be in the Gospel of Mark, there's a drastic thematic transition now that begins Jesus' end on earth in chapter 14. Which is where we are today by celebration or recognition at any rate called Palm Sunday. Things will be heating up just a couple of days down the road. And just as I wrap this up now, think about, again, the number of times he said, don't fall asleep, don't be sleeping, don't be even yawning, you know, be on the alert, be on guard, all of those things, all very synonymous. What we're going to come on if we had time to go through chapter 14 this morning, as I had hoped to do, you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane now, and there's Jesus in the garden, when he has the most horrible night of his life, wrestling with the realization of all that he is going to have to do in order to bring us the perfection and the righteousness that will satisfy the anger of a wrathful God against sin. He realizes that he is going to be taking our sins upon himself and the horror of what that means. And he says to the disciples, will you Stay awake with me and pray. And you know how that ends up. Jesus is wrestling. He's in turmoil. He goes off with the Father. And he says that he was so in, 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 in just, just this was such an intense kind of emotional thing that he started actually sweating drops of blood called hematidrosis. It is a real medical condition that does, uh, it does exist. It's rare, but it does exist. You can sweat drops of blood from high anxiety or tension or pressure. And Jesus gets up and he goes to get his best buds to pray for him. And there they are. feel like the three stooges yeah there you go got one fan and i just it only dawned on me this morning for all the many hours and hours and all the the many times over the years that i've read through the gospel it hit me this morning right previous to this the juxtapositioning of the scriptures about being awake, be alert, don't be a continually sleeping one. And here Jesus is. And for them, for the twelve, this is only a couple of days down the road for them. And after all of that, what does Jesus find them doing? Sleeping. I just thought that terribly ironic and not coincidental. So... How do we not sleep? How do we not slumber? How do we stay on our guard? How do we stay on the alert? It goes back to that whole prioritization of what we do in our lives, what we are about, why we live, why we exist. Do we truly live for the Lord? He says your bodies are not your own. They've been bought with a price. If you're a Christ follower, if not, yeah, go do what you want. But there will be a day of answer. And so Matthew 6.33, my life verse, seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. 
everything else will be added unto you. That is what the priority of our lives, of all Christ followers, are to be and what we are to be living for, not in order to work our way into heaven to be good enough. We can't do that. That's why Jesus had the horror that he had in Gethsemane and then on the cross, doing what we could never do, and that is appease the wrath of God with perfect righteousness that Jesus gladly gave to each one who receives it. Be on the alert. Elder Scott Ludick, come on up. Do not be 